So we are in the uh, fourth session of our probability series. In session three, we did refer to the natural rhythm of our prayer life. And uh, uh, just a reminder, this is what it looks like. And um, we are going to look at the Psalms and the prayer life and experience expression uh, of King David. And we are going to trace this rhythm of natural lows and highs. We call that the ascension and descension rhythm of prayer. So there's a valley and a mountaintop rhythm that we are going to naturally experience through the course of our life uh, on a daily basis, sometimes a weekly basis, and so forth. Um, and our prayer life should be following a similar pattern and there's a reason for it because there's strategy built into into prayer so um, we did say that we're going to start to trace this pattern in Psalm 22 last time we looked at Psalm 24 as the mountaintop or the peak of this uh, rhythm or pattern uh, we said we're going to go back and we refer to 22 as kind of the low point or the uh, low swing of this rhythm. Um, but we're going to surprise you with how positive 22 actually is. Let's have a look at Psalm 22 together. So, Nadia appeared out of nowhere. And um, <laughs> very glad she joined me. Um, Thank you for dropping <laughs> by. So, Nadia, we referred to Psalm 22 um, in the previous teaching in context to its mm. low points. Yes. Um, and uh, so let's, let's see how, if we didn't know what to look for, mm. can you point us to what it could look like? So, in the previous session, we said that Psalm 22 can be equated with a valley experience or a low point in King David's prayer rhythm. I'd also like to just remind everyone that we did say that a valley experience or a valley low does not necessarily have to be a negative experience. And we'll see that when we look at Psalm 22. However, when we do look at some of the specific verses, verses like 1 and 2, 6 and 7 and 11, it does seem as though King David has hit a bit of a low point in his life experience. So remember we said that the book of Psalms is a lifetime of King David expressing and processing his life experience but doing it through prayer. And he does this strategically, actively implement strategy to do this. And in doing this, this means that we can no longer look at someone like King David's prayer life and his life experience and try to separate the two. So he has merged his prayer experience and his life experience and his prayer rhythm and his life rhythm. They're not running parallel to one another. And this is because of the strategies that he employs. So... We'll see here in Psalm 22, in the seemingly low point, that he still uses a strategy or a maneuver, if you will, um, to remain steadfast, to steady himself in his mind, in his thoughts, in his emotions, and in his uh, life experience. 
Right. So, um, because of the strategy that he employs, this also leads actually to something else that's quite important and quite significant and exciting, if you will. Can I borrow the pen, please? So, um, I'm sure you'll all remember the teaching that we've done on the baseline. So, I'm going to recap that mm. in one and a half minutes. You mm. can help me if I leave anything out. So, normal human experience. This is for all humans. Um, our life experience also, similar to the prayer rhythm that we were explaining now, has a, not necessarily a rhythm, it can just be quite random, but we have ups and downs, so high points and low points. Um, the high points are uh, feelings of being elated or, you know, excessive kind of joy. Low points can get really low. Um, worst case scenario can lead to some form of addiction or even suicide. And then somewhere in the middle, there's a kind of an equilibrium, and we call that the baseline. So nothing is really horrible. Nothing is necessarily exceptionally great, but it's not bad, it's not great, it's, it's just good. So life is going on and everything is good and somewhat feeling of stability. Now, in the strategies that King David employs in his prayer life and now the, his prayer life and his life experience running parallel to one another, is that it ends up happening like this. So even his lowest point the lowest of his valley experiences in his life uh, experience and in his prayer rhythm, his lowest point, his lowest valley moment, is still going to be miles above a person without the knowledge of God's baseline. So a person who does not have the knowledge of God, their baseline, their normal, is still going to be below, that life experience is still going to be below King David's lowest point. And the thing that sets them apart, and this is quite important, that means that King David's strength lies in his knowledge of God. So, knowledge of God's person, knowledge of God's character, and most importantly, the knowledge of his salvation plan. So, this gives him strength, it gives him steadfastness, and even a constitution, if you will, mm. lies in the fact that he has the knowledge of God. So we can see that now his life experience and by extent his prayer rhythm is going to be something completely different to an unsafe person's life experience. Right, so now we're going to look at the specific verses that seem quite negative in Psalm 22. Uh, specifically the verses that illustrate King David's low seemingly low emotional state um, that would qualify him for a, for a valley experience. Um, we do see, and again this is going to be verses 1, 2, 6, 7 and 11 that we're going to be looking at specifically. And we see that in these verses he is referring to himself as a man focused on himself and focused on his problems, his emotional state. But... This isn't true for the entire psalm. So he isn't spending the entire psalm as a man focusing on himself. He only does this briefly. And then the rest of the psalm is mainly prophecy. So an uninformed person, if they were to read the entire Psalm 22 and don't have this information available to them, they would end up looking at a confused combination of 
prophecy and complaint. King David complaining. And so we see in Psalm 22, King David is expressing his experience in the flesh. But, and this is a big but, he doesn't stop walking in the spirit. So he's not moving out of the spirit into the flesh and then staying there. He is processing and he is experiencing and expressing his experience in the flesh. But that doesn't mean that he's not walking in the spirit anymore. Pressing a pause button on that. And in doing this, and, and we're going to look at the strategy that he employs to be able to not do that, to do both the expressing of his fleshly experience and remaining in the spirit. We're going to look at the strategy, but by employing this and by doing this, we see that he's already setting himself up for the upward curve. So he's already aligning himself. Again, we started looking at the strategy. He's aligning himself because he knows where he has to go eventually. And we see he does this very effectively because only two psalms later, he's already on the mountain peak again. Right, so before we look at the strategy specifically, let's look at these verses that illustrate his, his seemingly low emotional state at this stage. So, verse 1. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Now, groaning is a, is a very, very um, colorful word in this case, because you don't grow if you're just slightly sad, a little bit down, or just a little bit uncomfortable. Generally, one groans because there's pain. So we see... And we know that there is greater significance to specifically verse 1. But we can, at first glance, it does seem as though King David is working through feelings of abandonment, rejection. God has forsaken him. Um, why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? So God isn't, isn't even hearing him. We see in verse 2, he says, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and, and, and not silent. So there's this expression, this feeling of God is far, God has forsaken me. He's not hearing my prayer. He's not even listening. <laughs> Doesn't feel like he's listening to my prayer. And um, I'm sure most of the listeners would be able to relate to some form of this feeling. I'm, I'm sure we've all gone through low points where we even feel that our prayer isn't being heard or God isn't even trying to listen to our prayers. So it's not just that we're not being effective, that kind of feeling of God has forsaken me, we can relate. Um, if we move on to verse 6, he says, but I am a worm and no man. Now, this would be a feeling of worthlessness or even those experiences where we feel like an utter failure. So... I haven't achieved what I've wanted to achieve in my life. At this stage, I thought I would be much further along in the road of maturity, uh, on the road of faith. Having overcome much more than I have, it feels like I'm dealing with all the things that I've dealt with since the beginning. Um, various different feelings of worthlessness and feeling like a failure. He continues, he says, a reproach of men and despised by the people. I'm sure that's quite obvious. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head. So this would be feelings of, oh, uh, you know, not only am I not doing what I 
thought I would be doing at this stage or I'm not where I thought I would be at this stage. Now everyone can see my my lack. Uh, I feel like a, thaw, a sore thumb. I'm you know, uh, continually saying the wrong thing. I feel like the weak link. Everyone knows that I'm the guy not performing or I'm the guy that's you know, not where I'm supposed to be. Um, Verse 8. Uh, he's... Forget about the prophetic unfolding in mm. this um, psalm for a moment. Um, and just let's look at it from a perspective that it is King David primarily now writing first from his perspective as a person about himself. And he says, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. And, and this is something very real for the mm. uh, believer walking out their faith in righteousness, not compromising in the ways of the world or employing uh, compromise uh, strategies or um, alleviation mm. that is offered. So Satan will always offer us bribes. And we will have to, in walking the road of righteousness, we will often have to take a very um, uh, definite stance on certain mm. things, doing things in a certain way and not doing it in a way that could uh, profit us or benefit us. And um, very often it doesn't necessarily mean that God is just going to make things go uh, well mm. for us. So we will take a stance and then things will seemingly for a season still not work out in our advantage. It's in these times that the world around us, would, we most of us will experience where the world, world will go, see he's trusting in the Lord and see it's going better with us than with him. Now it's in this that um, we want to see that King David is quoting this kind of, uh, he's quoting something, he's referring to something, but he's expressing his own experience of this. So he's the man of God, the king that God appointed. And through his lifetime, he has quite a few embarrassing um, experiences. Mm. And when he's, a, when, when he's not doing well, all the nation is looking at him and going. Mm. And we'll know what that feels like. And I know that some of the people in our ministry has gone through this test. Mm. <clears throat> and this is why this is important in our prayer ability. Because we're going to see how... He's taking that reality, that experience that could be discouraging, mm. that could be our embarrassment could overcome us. We could even fall into doubt because the fact is I stood for the word of God. I stood mm. in righteousness. I took a stance. And, you know, then it looks like it's still going horribly wrong. And it could cause doubt in us. But he's going to connect it with something. And mm. there's a purpose with it. Mm. And this is where our key strategy for remaining steadfast lies. Mm. You can take us on. Sorry for interrupting mm. you to verse 11. No, no. Okay, so verse 11. He says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. And it could be that often in our, in our faith walks, we feel that what we're facing, what we have to do next might be too big for us. And so we know that certain overcomings, certain uh, challenges, we need to face alone. But um, 
this feeling of there's none to help might just be a feeling of this is too big for me to take on alone. And so from Psalm 22, we see that there are expressions of desperation, of feelings of possibly, possibly rejection, abandonment. God has forsaken him. God is not hearing him. He has to face all of this. He feels like a failure. He's a worm and not a man. Um, and so at, at first glance, if we look at these kind of expressions, it does seem like a very, very negative life experience. And yet, like we said, even in his great distress, in his fear and his anxiety, because of the strategy that he's employing, his negative experience, which might be genuinely negative in the flesh, is still going to be miles above an, a person without the knowledge of God's baseline. And so, let's look at the strategy We'll start looking at the strategy that, that he employs. Okay, so now, Psalm 22, pull back your vision and look at the whole thing. Obviously, there's a very uh, clear prophetic slant to this. So while he is uh, lamenting, mm. he's working in to this specific psalm a phenomenal um, prophetic depth. And and this could be baffling because on the one hand he's prophesying everything that is the going to happen on the cross. He's prophesying the crucifixion of Yahushua. Yet within the context of his prophecies, bringing, is is including his own lamenting, and 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 this could be confusing. What is happening here? Uh, he's employing a strategy. The purpose of this psalm cannot possibly be for him to just prophesy the future. Mm. There's not God uh, having him prophesying something that has to be put down on paper so that it's a prophecy on record. No, out of his prophetic understanding, he's employing a mechanism, a strategy that is going to anchor him mm. enough mm. to bridge from the moment of weakness and despair into a future steadfastness, something that's going to steady him. And the thing that is going to steady him is uh, the reality of the Messiah on the cross being crucified. He's steadying, he's, he's, he's finding his own steadfastness in in despair, in suffering, in rejection, he's finding his own steadfastness in connecting mm. with the reality of Messiah on the cross. It's significant because this is a, mm. a prayer strategy that um, we should be employing all the time. So it helps so that our, our, our perspective, our vision, doesn't shift so much to ourself mm. and our circumstances mm. that we start... Um, veering into a mindset where we think my suffering is the worst suffering. My circumstances is far beyond what I should be suffering because uh, I've got covenant, I know the Lord, I know the Lord loves me. Why am I suffering so much? Mm. I shouldn't be suffering this much. Things shouldn't be this bad. Mm. And what he's doing here is he's not just sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Mm. He's taking an anchoring rope and he's connecting it with something. Now, this is what he's doing. We know that in verse 1, 
the exact wording in verse 1 is uttered by Messiah on the cross. Okay. So, can you show us the bridge? Just draw the bridge for us. Mm. So, he's building a bridge. Not a straight steel bridge, but a hang bridge. You know a hang bridge that made of ropes and planks? It's not straight. It kind of hangs down a little bit. Yeah, so like there's a tree. But it connects to... <laughs> It connects to the other side. So he's finding himself in a very low point in his personal experience for whatever reason. Mm. But he's not just complaining, he's acknowledging the fact that he's in pain. He's acknowledging what's happening to him. Mm. And this is very important. He's also, on the other hand, also not ignoring his pain or his vulnerability or his weakness and going like, no, 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 no. I feel weak, but God is strong, and, you know, let's just ignore all these feelings of weakness. Um, he's also not doing that, because that could also lead to a fall. And it's very important to bring this in at this moment. So, uh, a lot of believers in their faith response, they think, I've just got to try and ignore mm. what I'm experiencing. No, he's expressing his experience. Mm. He's expressing, I'm a worm and not mm. even a man. He's, he's working it. through it, but he's not falling into it. That's right. So he's not going to stay there. He's going to acknowledge it. He's going to express it. He's formulating it, expressing it. But he's going to remain accountable and he's going to connect with something else. And that's the strategy. So he's connecting with Yahushua's lowest moment of his human experience on the cross. He has enough prophetic insight and revelation to have deep understanding of exactly what is going to happen on the cross. Mm. He's going to graphically connect with Yahushua's experience on the cross. Mm. He's going to, in prophetic vision, graphically bring detail from the day of the crucifixion, important detail, and he's going to bring it through time, pull it back into his experience into his day, into his life. But he's also going to now start to connect with the fact that I am in Messiah dying on the cross, as I will be in Messiah in the resurrection. See, if my life, my, the person that I am on earth, if that life is not taken by the power and might of God, and drawn into Messiah on the cross, then I cannot be a partaker of the crucifixion of Messiah. I have to be a partaker. So I died with Messiah. I've been crucified with Messiah. Paul confirms this in Galatians 2.20. What King David is doing here is he's basically expressing, I no longer live, but it's... I've been crucified with Messiah, and it's Messiah that lives in me. So, so in, in Psalm 22, he's employing exactly the same, same strategy that Paul advises us to employ. He's not ignoring the fact that as a person in his time, in his day, he's having a negative experience. Mm. He's not ignoring his, his discouragement or his disappointment. Or the feelings of being alone or rejected. Mm. But he's not going to 
allow himself to stay there. He's going to build a bridge over time and connect with the everlasting day of the crucifixion. The, the, the cross is outside of time and it's always accessible. And in the pain and suffering and weakness of Messiah on the cross, he's going to find enough strength to cause his suffering to pale in um, context to the suffering of Messiah. So what I'm saying is, in comparison, in taking his lowest moment and connecting it in comparison to the Messiah Yahushua on the cross, mm. he's going to survive his moment of pain. So he's not going to say, I, I, I'm not, I don't have the right to suffer or to complain because you suffered more. Mm. He's saying, I acknowledge that I'm at a low point. I'm, I'm groaning. I have pain. I am uh, feeling rejected. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it's going that I'm going to connect that with the fact that as one man, all of us will be partakers of the suffering of Messiah. He will take all of the pain that I'm experiencing, all of the loneliness and rejection and disappointment and uncertainty. He's going to take that on the cross. And this is our corporate experience in Messiah, although we uh, will only experience, uh, for most of us, a, a small percentage of the reality of it. Mm. And he's going to connect with that. And he's going to say, even the Son of God, who is God, in becoming flesh, will have to go through the experience of being absolutely weak. He will go through the experience of being rejected and reviled by the people around. And he's connecting with the reality that on the cross, so prophetically he's quoting what the people are saying to Messiah. He's saying the God of gods, the creator God is hanging on the cross and the people around are saying to him, you trusted in God. Look at you now. You trusted in God and, uh, well, let him help you. And he's saying, I, I'm connecting with that because I'm having the same experience. But the next step isn't just, oh, you know, at least I'm suffering because he suffering, suffered. He's going to connect with the fact that right after the lowest point comes salvation. And right after the absolute low point of death itself, remember death is the wages of sin. So Messiah is hanging on a tree as a curse. You can't go lower. And uh, crucifying him, rejecting him, reviling him, but reviling his trust that he has put in, in uh, Yahweh, and uh, then death. But after that comes the victory. So Messiah didn't do it by might, he did it by the Spirit. He didn't do it by his own strength. He did it by the will of God. And in following through on the will of God, it's the Father that will come and save him off that uh, tree. So he will die. And he will go into the grave. And he will overcome sin and death as the Son of God. 
but it is still the Father God and the Holy Spirit that will come and raise him from the grave. And so King David could well, in this expression, say, even if my uh, weakness brings me to death, that's not the end of the story. You will raise me up. Um, and I will trust in you because even beyond the failures of this life, uh, the perfect will of God has given us victory, has given us life, has given us uh, a guarantee. And so he's building a bridge. Can you fill in the two scriptures for us there to show us? Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. So he's building a bridge. We see this amazing bridge through time and through the entire Word of God. Where now we we're looking at Psalm twenty-two, and it's an absolute prophecy of the day of the crucifixion of the Lord with detail detail that lines up with the actual experience or the actual events. Interestingly enough, when Yahushua is hanging on the cross to fulfill prophecy, mm. to confirm the substance of faith and prayer in King David by the Spirit, and to confirm the link between everything that's been prophesied in Psalm 22 and the actual event, he, Messiah on the cross, is building the same faith bridge all the way back to the confirmation of the will of God. So in his lowest moments on the cross, he can strengthen and edify himself in faith by saying, this has been prophesied by King David. A long time ago. This is confirmed to be the will of the Father. So in dying on the cross, even Yahushua could connect back mm. with the power of the proclaimed and revealed will of God. Mm. So King David can connect to find strength, fortitude and steadfastness with the reality of the prophetic truth and certainty of the will of God. Messiah on the cross can build the same bridge back mm. to the prophecies of King David and go, um, I could grow too weak for this, but this has been prophesied. Mm. This is God's perfect will. Mm. And the lowest point, the greatest suffering, is to be tolerated and can be survived if we understand that the Word of God is steadfast and He's faithful. This is an aspect of uh, prayer efficiency that I think we cannot overemphasize. This is extremely important mm -hmm. to build a prophetic soundness, a prophetic bridge into our prayer life mm -hmm. when times are tough, when things become difficult. Mm -hmm. Does this make mm -hmm. sense? Okay. So now, shall we just look at the text? From mm. here on. Just, so just to sum it up, the strategy, because we're still looking at King David's prayer ability and the strategy that he employs. So to sum it up, remember we said that he always knows where he's supposed to end up again. So mm. he's employing a strategy, he's finding himself in this low point, and he needs to use a maneuver 
because he has to he knows he has to propel himself out of this valley again he is having a very negative experience in the flesh but he's not going to stop walking in the spirit and he knows that he has to move he has to continue to move so he's going to use gravity and momentum of this movement that's already there so he is in the valley but he's going to use the momentum that's available to propel himself back up and we know that he does this pretty quickly because he ends up back on the mountain in Psalm 24. So in building this bridge, practically what he's doing is he's connecting his weakness with the weakness of that of Messiah. So remember we said that the point where he has to, he knows he has to end up uh, back up at the one man truth. So even in his low point, he's going to channel that truth. He's going mm. to use that mm. reality. Mm. Mm. So he's going to connect with Messiah on the cross because he understands that even though he's not experiencing the one-man reality right now, he knows that it is still true. Yeah. So he's employing that to connect with Messiah on the cross, like you said. Mm. So he's connecting his weakness with the fact that Messiah is weak on the cross. As he is flesh God came in the flesh. As he's suffering, Messiah suffered. As he's weak, Messiah was weak. He's feeling abandoned. He's connecting that to the feeling of abandonment that Yahushua could have felt on the cross. The feeling of rejection, he's connecting with the feeling of rejection. The feeling of being reviled and ridiculed, he's connecting with the feeling of being reviled and, and, and ridiculed. But what he's doing, and this is exactly like what you said, is because he knows He's not just doing this so that he has a comparison and go like, oh, well, I can feel weak because Messiah felt weak. He's doing this because he knows. Remember the knowledge of God that sets him apart, the knowledge of the salvation plan. He knows, and this is what you said, after death comes resurrection. <coughs> after death comes the victory. <coughs> so if he connects himself to the weakest point of Messiah, then there's nowhere to go but up. Yep. There's nowhere to go but yep. up. Because the Father is going to come and raise yeah. the Son from the dead because of the will of God. The will of God has to be done. So that means if he can just connect there, if he can just find his stability in the weakness of Messiah, then there's nowhere to go but up. Because from here on out, there is only victory. Yeah. And so he's going to use that as a momentum, as a gravity propelling him back up in yeah. the curve to, to the peak. Exactly. So he's going to build that bridge at the very low swing of the valley from knowing that if you are over here, you're already at the, a low swing and you don't actually know if you could go lower than this. So lower than that is the place where you've gone, you've bottomed out on your faith. Now instead of bottoming out, He's going to connect with the moments on the cross there. So what is Messiah's lower than that point is when he's actually dead. Which was also his high point. But he's connecting from where he's at here. Instead of going all the way into the bottom. If you just imagine the very bottom of the hole, that's where the muck and the mud is. You don't want to go all the way there. So he's just connecting to uh, the, up, the place where the upward curve is going to start happening. And that's the low point of Messiah on the cross just about to die. Just about to die. 
and he's in saying, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's going to arrive immediately at the reality check that uh, Messiah said this, and he knows prophetically that Messiah did say this, but the, 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 the evidence afterward was that God did not forsake him. So even if we could possibly find ourselves in life at a place where we feel to say, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? It's going to force us the moment we have the thought, the moment we are tempted to, to ask the question, we have to come back to the reality that after Messiah asked that, he was resurrected. After Messiah said, said that, he went even lower into death. And it's in that moment of death that he entered into the presence of God with the ultimate sacrifice of his blood. And it was accepted. And he had all the victory over all things. So the moment that we are in a place where we go, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's actually just before the moment of us having to come to the, the true realization that next comes the resurrection. Next comes the, the faithfulness of the Father. Next comes the, all the promises of God being yes and amen and fulfilled, even, if, even beyond the grave, even beyond death. And so this is a force that has to propel us upward. The only thing that can keep you there is if you are unwilling to connect with the truth of the victory and the perfect will of the Father and the answer of the Father. Because after he said, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After that comes the, the truth of the resurrection. And so the person that is sliding down there and are unwilling to build the bridge, they'll fall in the muck. Um, but the one that is willing to connect with the truth of the cross can not slide any lower. That's the end of the slide. And now that mechanism will start bringing you upward. I just want to make sure that we understand. That is why it's very important for our life experience to have the same prayer rhythm. Allow your prayer rhythm to follow and flow with your life rhythm. It's very important. Listen to what I'm saying. Commit yourself uh, to allow your prayer rhythm to follow your life rhythm. And your life rhythm to be in line with your prayer rhythm. The one will ultimately pick the other one up and, and, and form a baseline that is healthy. Why are we saying this? Because the reality is uh, I need to think. Can you pass it on? The reality is that believers want to do the opposite. I'll show you and I'll illustrate how believers want to do the opposite. So, there's the natural rhythm and then whenever we sense that because of circumstances or because of um, uh, influences, we are on the downward slope, and it's going to happen sometime, what goes up must come down. Um, 
we we finding we sensing a downward slope. What believers want to do in difficult circumstances, they want to employ the opposite prayer rhythm and think that's going to lift them up. So what they want to do is, when it's going low, physically, emotionally, uh, financially, spiritually, uh, relationally, we're feeling a low swing. We want to now counterbalance that with employing a, I'm going to lift a, a prayer rhythm that's going to be the opposite. So we want to do a prayer rhythm that's going to do this. So we want to create a power, a, a counter force, and we think that's going to help us not go into the low swing. Okay, this could work, but we don't often see King David employing this at all. We don't see even see. Okay, so Peter and John will sing in jail. Okay. But that is connecting to something. We should veer away from when we're feeling the low swing to go like, I'm going to pray myself out of this. I'm going to worship myself out of this. I'm going to stand and just proclaim everything is good and everything is wonderful. And we try and avoid and ignore the fact that I'm feeling low. I'm feeling disappointed. And I'm feeling stressed. I'm feeling anxious. And what is going to happen is, we have to now create that curve in prayer. But the reality of our life cycle is this. And that takes a heck of a lot of effort and energy. And most people cannot maintain and sustain it. And so what happens is most people will try to create the upward curve in prayer and then plummet, ding, 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 bonk, all the way down then have to try and create this again and fall down because we just, most of us can't concentrate for long enough. So we create this upward swing in prayer until we stop praying and then have you found how quickly you're down in the dumps again? The uh, King David method of connecting with the cross, with the lowest point of Messiah's physical experience is a, a much a more energy efficient prayer strategy. Works much quicker, much faster, and we are going to now, uh, in this teaching, go on to when is that upward curve and downward curve, when does worship and praise and the high points of things, where, where does it fit in? Where it takes less energy, it's more sustainable, and it flows together with your life uh, rhythm. So now let's just go through the psalm and, and lift out the wonderful, obviously, I'm sure everybody wants to pay a bit of attention to the prophetic side of this Definitely. psalm. Definitely. Um, although we're focusing on what we can use in prayer, um, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, prophetic connection. So obviously verse 1 is connecting with um, Matthew 27 verse 46. And um, he's expressing, he's, what he's doing is he's connecting in the one man reality on, an, on another uh, level. Mm. So he's, we could think of connecting one man as there 
in the completion of all things. Mm. And this mm -hmm. is the ultimate truth of one man. In the completion of all things, all those believers that are redeemed are in Messiah, part of uh, one spirit, one body. And that is the ultimate meaning of one man. But here, very interestingly, he's employing one man reality or he's, um, he's, he's, he's identifying with Messiah as a man mm. and Messiah as eternal resurrected uh, one man. We are his body and he's the head. Mm. Yeah, he's employing it on, on a, a completely different level. Mm. So here he's connecting, according to one man, with Yahushua in the flesh. Mm. Because he does represent all the sons of God, the seed, in one physical form. And here King David is wise enough to connect with that mm. on a personal level. Mm. And so... Um, he is going to go from as a person. Now, just read verse 1 and read it as if it's only King David saying the words without the connection to Messiah. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear in the night season and am not silent. Now, he's going to lift up in acknowledging his suffering, his real feelings of being alone, abandoned, and rejected, he's acknowledging those feelings. So it might sound like complaining, and we as believers don't want to go into selfish complaining. Mm -hmm. But he's going, like, I'm not going to ignore the fact this I'm feeling, I'm going to call out to the Lord in this way. And then in verse 3, he's going to go and he's going to acknowledge why it is that in his human fleshly experience on earth, although he has a, a, a reality of also uh, walking in the Spirit and, and, and knowing his salvation, mm. he's now just acknowledging that I'm on earth, I'm, I am flesh and I'm in trouble and I'm feeling terrible. He's acknowledging it. But now in verse 3, he's going to bring a, a, a mental correction by just also truthfully and righteously Expressing why it is that being on earth is feeling separated from God. Mm. He's going, but you are holy. And we remember the root meaning of the word holy is separated, separate from. So he's saying, I'm feeling terrible and alone and you far from me and I'm feeling rejected. But I have to remind myself that you are separated from all the troubles of man. Weaknesses of man. So God will, by the strength and might of his right arm, mm. he will work into the troubles of man, but God himself is not part of our troubles. He's not um, afflicted by mm. our troubles, uh, our fleeting times. Mm. So the, the, the Second World War was one of the greatest events on earth, terrible and devastating, but for God it was fleeting. In nature. Mm. All the human suffering was fleeting. We've got to understand this. And here he's connecting with this. So he's, 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 he's very righteous in the balance in which he does things. Mm. Mm. So even in the low, depressed, um, emotional state he's in, he's going to be wonderfully righteous. 
and he goes, but you are holy. You are separate from the, my afflictions. Mm. And then he goes, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In quoting Israel, he's not referring to the nation Israel. He's referring, we did this in previous teachings, to the one man. The fact that uh, Jacob becomes Israel and represents all the seed of all the generations of those who will be of faith. And they will be referred to as Israel. And, um, and uh, this becomes very important. So now, he says, enthroned in the praises of Israel. So he's referring not only to the praises of the nation, but the praises of all the generations of those who are of faith, because they are, they are Jacob. And now, our fathers trusted in you. Now he's going that beyond my circumstances, you are... Holy, separated. Mm. And beyond my circumstance, even over the last 2,000 years, of my fathers have trusted in you. So he's now busy just putting perspective into place. Mm. Again, that not just focusing on himself as an individual, but putting his personal experience in context and in relation to a nation's experience, to generations mm. of experience. Exactly. With, with Yahweh. So now he's, called, he's going back through history. He's going, my fathers called on you and you delivered them. Um, and he's, he's, he's looking at the big picture because the fact is that for 400 years, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. But the outcome was that God delivered them as a nation. Yes. He didn't deliver them as individuals in every generation, but He did deliver the posterity. Very important. And then He says, um, but I am a worm. So now he's, putting, he's, putting, he's differentiating again between his, the moment in time, the day in time, and His frail human form in mm. time. Mm. He's differentiating between that and the greater reality of the finished work of God. Um, and he says, but you, I'm a worm, no man, a, a reproach of men and despised of, by the people. And now he's going mid. So he's literally going, um, he's going from mid verse 6 himself, uh, first sentence, He's going to go second sentence and he's going right back into uh, him as being part of Messiah. Mm. So employing a duality but keeping one man very much in mind. So the duality is that I'm in the flesh and not fully redeemed in time mm. and in my experience. Mm. But I'm also in Messiah and fully redeemed and sanctified in eternity outside of time. The duality that we live with. Mm. I'm flesh and I'm spirit. I am still living and will die, but mm. yet I have been raised from death and are already living my eternal yes. life. Duality. Yes. So, so he is employing to, that. Yeah, just to lift out again, um, just so anyone can understand, this isn't just uh, happening to him by chance. Yeah. It's not the spirit leading him to do this or just... Mm. He's just poetic enough to happen upon the right solution for his problem. He's forcibly doing this, actively doing this, actively willfully. employing, willfully employing this strategy. So, so again, please don't just hope that this is going to happen to you in your prayer life and in your experience. 
This is mm. actively and willfully done by him. Mm. So he knows what he has to do because he knows where he has to end up. So he's going to actively employ this. That's right. Um, so we, we see he did this in verse 1 and 2. Go back to verse 1 and 2. He starts off with the, he starts off with the connection, of uh, the one-man connection. Mm. Actually, um, speaking, of, speaking out of his own uh, experience and, and person in line with the fact that he's part of Messiah and a great eternal unfolding. Yes. Then um, he, in verse 2, he's still there. He's still connected with one man. He says, oh my God, I cry out in the daytime. That's referring to Messiah in the middle of the day calling out to God. But then, he's still there in verse 2, and he says, but you do not hear me. And then he swings back to himself. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. Now he's talking about himself calling out in the night season. So he's, he's keeping that bridge between himself and the reality of him as being part of the one man, uh, part of Messiah, in Messiah, uh, is keeping the duality bridge very much in place mm. and swinging between the two. Mm. Okay. Um, now, anybody knows that by swinging, you can create enough momentum to get yourself out of a ditch. Okay. So, now, and then he's going, but you are holy now. He's going to the eternal reality of God. Um, then he's bringing it back to, so he's going to, the eternal reality of God in His kingdom, going all the way back to the origin of faith in His forefathers. Mm. So now He's putting Himself somewhere in the middle. Now we all know that's how um, gears work. Mm. You don't want to just connect one small gear to the biggest gear and think it's going to work. You, it works better when you put a small gear with a medium gear and then a big gear. And then you have a good distribution of energy. Now... Okay, so this is what he's doing here. You'll figure it out. Just use, we're giving you the clues. You can go look at it and figure it out. Then he's going, um, verse 6, he's going again from where he's at in himself as an individual, swinging all the way back to one man. Um, And verse 7 is speaking about Messiah. Because that's happening to him. He might have the same experience, but he's now more, more focused on the, the experience of Messiah on the cross. Mm. The ultimate experience of man reject, uh, godly man rejected by uh, Satan's seed man yes. and afflicted. And um, so, so I don't want to build out on it too much, but... If we then go from there, very importantly, so one man between verse 6 and 7 all the way through to verse 8, he is going from himself as man to verse 8, absolutely Messiah, um, because he says he trusted in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord. He's no longer speaking about himself. He's making very clear he's no longer speaking about himself. He trusted in the Lord. Um, let him rescue him. That's what they're saying to Messiah on the cross. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So now he's quoting what the people are mocking Messiah on the cross with. So he went from himself in verse 6 as a man, David, connecting in verse 8 
to the reality of the man on the cross and the link in between becomes that one man mm. reality. Mm. This is what we want to build into our thinking, our life experience, all our attitudes, mm. all our approaches and our prayer. Um, and then obviously we can skip all the way over to verse um, 14. Again, a reference to Messiah on the cross. I'm poured out like water. Okay, the water pouring out of his side. Mm. Um, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shed and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Now, this is him describing the very experience of Messiah on the cross. So, he's got a very personal, intimate um, experiential uh, connection with what Messiah is experiencing on the cross. Because we know that King David was never in a situation where all his bones were out of joint. So here, he's actually connecting to the cross uh, on such an intimate reality level that his own suffering is now starting to pale in comparison. Very, very significant strategy for lifting yourself out of your own circumstances. Okay, then he's going to speak about the dogs have surrounded me um, in verse 16. Um, let's go to verse 18 confirming that he's now completely speaking about the man on the cross he's saying they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cost lots well I mean in verse 16 even they pierced my hands and my feet I almost missed that yeah. pierced my hands and my feet so now he's speaking as if he's speaking about himself He's now immersed himself so much in the other side of the duality. Mm. He's actually moved himself from pitiful little man to being so much part of the person Messiah and the way he suffered for my iniquities that he's almost forgotten. He's left his pitiful self behind mm. And, and it didn't take him very long in prayer. Remember we said in the previous sessions that King David has a way of losing himself in the one-man reality. Now, there was a positivity to that when we looked at Psalm 24. This would be kind of the other side of the coin where he is in a difficult situation, but again, hanging on, clinging on to that one-man reality because he knows that's the ultimate truth. But we see that this is a different way of employing the same strategy. So again, he's lost his own identity so he's not in the euphoric kind of experience of one man of the one man truth he's at the low point of the one man truth but still in the one man lost himself in the in the truth the ultimate truth so i think uh, anybody that finds this too long can you would have the full teaching if you stopped viewing now for those that want a bit extra we're just going to carry on a little bit um mm. because it's wonderful eternal, um, outside of time, uh, uh, perspective built into this prayer. So between verse 19 and 21, he swings back into mm. his, himself again. Because remember, he doesn't want to deny that he's there and that he's suffering. Mm. He's, he's focusing most of his attention on part of the one man and the suffering of Messiah. The reality of uh, after Messiah's lowest point is going to be a resurrection and total victory. Now he's swinging back. He's saying... 
Um, but you, O Lord, do not be far from me. Now speaking about himself again. O oh, my strength, I hasten to help me, deliver me from the sword. So he's speaking about himself again. Um, and he's saying, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Now what he's doing is, he's connecting with the fact that his life has purpose. Mm. That there's, there's, there's God has a purpose with his life. Mm. And that at the moment where he feels like a worm, he has no worth, he has no respect among men, um, he's actually weakened and he might as well give up. He's connecting with the fact that my life is precious because there's purpose to it. This mm -hmm. is where he's going now. Mm -hmm. And um, he's saying, save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Now he's connecting to the fact that there has been communication from God's side. This would be that slingshot. Now he's, he's starting to lift out. Yeah. So he's now employed the strategy, and now there's answer. There's that kind of feeling of looking up. Okay, let's go. Let's start moving. That's right. Now he's going to connect again with the reality of Messiah's life, Messiah's work on earth, what Messiah came to put in place, the ministry of Yahushua. Mm -hmm. And out of the ministry of Yahushua, he's now going to connect his own life purpose and destiny. He's going to plug it in to the ministry of Messiah. And we know that that's the purpose for every son or daughter's life on earth. We are here to witness to the finished work and every detail of that work of Messiah Yahushua. And here he's going to connect with that. So he just said, and you have answered me. So he's now going like, I'm not just hoping that you love me and that you have purpose for mm. my life. We, you've spoken to him about who I am and what should be done. And he has spoken to you through his word, no matter who you are, because Messiah said to his disciples, go out into all the world. Go make disciples, baptizing them in my name and teaching them to do all the things that I commanded you. Now in that... Each of us can connect with that one thing. You have spoken to me. If I've been called to salvation, then I've been called to go through the cross, through the water, to be resurrected, to be a witness of the resurrection of Messiah. And that means that I am commanded to be part of that going out and making disciples. And in this, this is where he's going now. It's going like, yes, at the moment I'm worth this, but my, the purpose for my life has not ended. And now he's going to go, I will declare your name to my brethren. Yeah, it's a 50-50 mixture between what King David is saying, his purpose for his life is, and he's connecting with the ministry of Messiah because we have no other ministry. And the thing that Messiah came to do on earth was to declare the name of Yahweh to his brethren. This is the reason why they find him guilty of... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Blasphemy. So that's why they keep they find him guilty of blasphemy, so that they can crucify him, because he went and he declared the name that was not allowed to be uttered, Yahweh. And he declared it in the Sanhedrin, he declared it on the streets, and he declared it to his brethren. We know in John 17, he again and again prays, Father, I've declared your name to the brethren. See, this is that moment, he's referring to the moment in the Sanhedrin that Yahushua is declaring the name of Yahweh in, um, 
in relation to his own finished work. Now he says, I will declare your name to, name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. And this refers to that moment. And King David is connecting his own life purpose with that purpose. Now, for us as believers, this is an intrinsic part of the purpose of our lives. No matter what you think your calling is, your calling is to declare His true name to the brethren and to praise Him in His true name according to His true purposes in the assembly. Both the assembly as the great cloud of witnesses and the assembly as we find them uh, scattered on earth. Mm. Now, if we're praising Him in any other way besides declaring His name, then that was not true praise. And it was not part of our true destiny or purpose. Now, a lot of people are busy with a lot of work that they think they're busy with the things of the gospel or work of God. But if the, 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 the hub of the wheel in the middle is center, that everything is connected to is not the name of God, Yahweh and Yahushua, the Messiah, then all the work mm. is for naught. It's just a wheel turning in the air like this. You have to turn the wheel upside down to touch earth and it will uh, have purpose, but it has that central hub and that is the name of God and then the gospel will go places. Otherwise, it will be just spinning our wheels. And now it's going to go. And he's going to go even further. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. Now it's referring to the seed truth. Mm. So the promise made to the seed and the fact that all those um, who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Now it's connecting to that. So it's literally now gone from I'm a worm mm. to declaring the greatest truths of the gospel and the purposes of God on earth. Mm. Just before we run out of time, I really think that we should get to verse 24. Okay. Uh, where it says... For he has not despised nor abhorred the afflicted, the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. And um, I think this is such a high point in this psalm because it answers a century-long question and debate that has been raging since this has probably been written. Um, so for those who don't know, verse 24 is actually the answer to verse one actually verse one two three but specifically verse one so my god my god why have you forsaken me has caused a lot of questions and debates because yahushua quotes this on the cross and there's been a lot of debate and dispute about did the father leave him on the cross did he take his spirit from him did he turn his face the other way because and i mean some of the debates and some of the preachings go that because Yahushua took all of the sin of the world into his body, this was despicable in the eyes of the Father, so the Father turned his face away. And so there was the Son calling out, But my Father, why have you forsaken me? Missing the fact that in the same psalm that is prophesying these events, King David actually answers the question. So he says, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. But, but, but it's, it has such emotional, I mean, it's, it's, it's so effective dramatically. Mm. I mean, I can see how you want to utilize that in a, a nice preach, especially if you have a mm. pulpit in front of you and you can go, 
Oh, the moments when the father turned his face mm. away because he could not bear looking at the sin of humanity. Mm. And here the son of God, our hero, uh, is hanging on the cross so all low. alone, dying. Abandoned. And the separation. Uh, you see, we can connect with that because... We go like, oh, I'm such a, a sinner. sinful state. Oh, and the Father's looking. But I just have to go through this the same way that the Son had to go through this. And uh, the, the fact of the matter is that that's not what happened at all. No. Um, in fact, when we look at New Testament scriptures, for instance, in 2 Corinthians, it says that the Father was in the Son, in Messiah, reconciling the world to himself. In Colossians, it says that the Father himself nailed the list of requirements to the cross. Which means that he wasn't turning a blind eye. He wasn't going like, okay, son, you do this. I'll, I'll come fetch you when you're dead. <laughs> he was there. He was actively playing a part, playing a role. Yeah. He was there answering his son. So, no, he didn't turn a blind eye, turn his face away so that his holiness would not have to you know, lay eyes on the filthiness of the world. He was actually approaching cross, nailing the list of requirements that would... As Messiah, as Yahushua took all the sin of the world into his own body, the very list that would um, uh, prove him to be guilty, the Father actually nailed to the cross. So no, he didn't leave the Son. He didn't abandon the Son. Yes, the Son had to take all of the sin of the world into himself and in the flesh, separate the flesh from the eternal existence of Messiah and put that into the grave. Yes, but the Father never left him. Father never abandoned him to do it on his own. And so this is what, what King David is actually answering in this psalm. And so this, could, this also brings us to the conclusion that our salvation is not dependent on the depth of our sin reality or our sin experience. Our salvation is actually much more dependent on whether the Spirit is going to cause us to cry out to our Father. Because if we are sons and daughters and we cry out, then... He will hear, because that is what King David is saying. But when he cried to him, he heard. So it very clearly says, verse 24, Nor has he hidden his face from him. Mm. Very important in our thinking. Because, see, we could still be vulnerable to the thinking that in my weak moments, in the moments when I have gone and mm. gone back into the flesh, my old way of thinking, old way of acting, mm. we could think that there's a part of my person that God doesn't want to see. Yeah, he'd, choose, he'd rather choose to ignore this part of my existence. We're thinking that it could be very easy to say that it's wonderful to be in his sight when I'm worshipping when I'm in the times of connecting with the truth of God and I'm lifting up worship peaks. to Him. <laughs> and, uh, but there's moments of my life that God just turns His face mm. away from me. because I'm, This is something we have to get away from. It's not true. It's not biblical. The only reason that Messiah is quoting King David's words on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is to confirm... To all generations, from in the moments when he is dying, he is still determined to witness and to um, confirm, and to prophecy. He is still confirming, confirming the word of God from Genesis to Revelation is true and will be fulfilled. 
He's still determined to make sure that we understand that in the moments when all the sin of the world is upon him, prophecy is true and the will of God is true and faithful. And that God the Father is the one that determined all these things to be like this. We don't have to have a mentality at any moment of our lives, the lowest point, that I cannot immediately draw close to the Father. Mm, or call out to Him. And He will, He will answer. I don't have to first claw my way myself out of the hole and climb my way up to a mole's heap so I can be a little bit higher and then call out to God. Mm. We have to get rid of that idea. So here is the absolute answer to the big question. No. Yahushua never went down into hell. No. The Father never ever forsook mm. His Son and we are in His Son because the cross is outside of time and always available. And I was raised with Messiah. That means when He was raised, I was raised. Which means when I was born, I was already uh, in a process of redemption. And the Father will never turn His head away. He will never turn His face away from any of His sons or daughters. We can follow these strategies in prayer. Um, and I think that's enough for now. Mm.